We're looking at Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I heard about a guy that was walking down the street, one foot in the curb and one foot in the gutter. You know, wobbling back and forth, and the police pulled over, began to cite him for drunkenness, public drunkenness. And he said, are you sure I'm drunk? And they said, we're sure. Are you sure? And they said, yes. He said, great. And they thought, what in the world? Why are you happy? Because he said, I thought I was crippled. <laughs> Beginning to think I was crippled. That wasn't even good, was it? That was average. Romans chapter 8, one of the great passages of Scripture. We're going to look at all these nine verses, 31 through 39. We'll stand. I'm just going to read the first verse, but we're going to go through all these verse by verse as we always do. <clears throat> we call this exposition, going verse by verse, finding out what Scripture says. It's not important what I say, but what God says, right? So we'll look at this. Romans chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? And that little word, if, could be translated since. The Greek word's translated both ways. Since God's for us, who could be against us? That's a rhetorical question. In other words, we don't have a thing to worry about. Nothing can be against us because God is on our side. Let's pray. God bless us as we take a look in your book for a walk in this world that will glean something that's helpful for us that we can be steady, consistent believers in a world that's not consistent. Help us to be a light in a dark world, to be a healthy life in a cruel, unhealthy world, to reach others with the gospel. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> of course, Paul is writing here. You may be seated. And remember, Romans is the first church epistle. You had the four gospels which tell us the history of the life of Christ. Of course, you have the Gospel of the Kingdom, Matthew. Then the Gospel of John, which is all about the simplicity of salvation for all of us. And then you have the book of Acts, which is a transitional book connecting the Gospels to the epistles. Acts is a book of experiences. As you read it, you see there were a lot of things happening. And the apostolic gifts that they had were amazing. We don't have apostles today. Remember, the Bible says to be an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. There are no more apostles. We don't have people raising the dead today. But God still heals. God still can do anything because he's still God. But we don't have apostles. Then we have the first church epistle, Romans. And Romans deals with five very important doctrines. Condemnation is the first doctrine. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Then we have justification. We're just as if we'd never sinned because of the blood of Christ. Then we have sanctification. We're set apart to serve him. Consecration and finally glorification. Our glorification process will be complete when we finally get our new body. Here we are. It's 50-some years after the death of Christ. We'll, we use the word A.D. or the uh, initials A.D. <clears throat> we simplify it by talking about the fact that it's after the death. And Paul is writing to a bunch of Gentile churches in Rome. Now, the Jews had pretty much left the city because Tiberius in 1919 A.D. had cast all Jews out of Rome. They were persecuting them, something terrible, and cast them out of Rome. And of course, eventually, remember, 70 years A.D., the temple was destroyed. 
So Christians are, are Jews, excuse me, have been driven out of the city, and Paul is now writing to the Gentile churches. He's trying to encourage them to learn how to live in a world where the Roman emperor demanded that they worship him, yet to live under that emperor's rule and only worship the Lord. So that's what he's writing for. Of course, Latin was the language of the day, and the Latin arrangement of New Testament books is why Romans is listed sixth. Rome, the city, from if you took an aerial shot of the city back then, you'd see that all, Rome, all roads lead to Rome. It's like a great big wheel around the city, and all roads led to the center. And that was, the, we call it the Roman roads. And we have a, uh, uh, Lloyd knows the meaning of that because he had a pizza house called Roman Road, Romans Road Pizza. And you all have heard of the Romans Road Track. That's where that initiated from the road system of Rome. Made of stone, a great system. Those roads are still intact today. And they all lead to the center of the city. But it was a city of four million people. And 60,000 slaves at this time. And Paul here is writing, and he's writing to all the people all the Gentiles, there were three classes of people, really the senatorial class, the senators and their families, they were the political crowd, aristocrats. And then you had the equestrian, equestrian class, the rich people, and then the publican class, the not Republican, but the publican, actually the plebeian class of poor people, excuse me. And so he's writing this passage. In this passage, there's so much so many rich things to look at. He says he's for us. He freely gives us all things. He says he justifies us. He intercedes for us. He conquers and he loves us. And that's not even what we're going to emphasize today. We're going to look today at seven rhetorical questions. Seven rhetorical questions. These are questions that the answer is so obvious you don't need to give the answer. And of course he starts out in verse 31 by saying, you know, if God be for us, who can be against us? And what's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. We have nothing to worry about. God's on our side. And that's the first rhetorical question he asked out of seven. First of all, we want to point out there's no eternal opposition. We have temporary opposition in our lives, in our world, but no eternal opposition because God's on our side. In verses 31 through 33. And he says here in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Now remember, this statement would then connect this passage with the previous passage. So we look back in chapter 8, we find so many interesting things that connect to this portion of Scripture. It tells us in chapter 8 that everyone groans waiting for the Lord to come back. Creation groans, that means all the creatures, everything in creation all groan. You know, every plant groans, every part of creation groans waiting for him to come back. Because the curse affected all of creation. The Bible said the spirit groans. And we groan waiting for the Lord to come back. Wouldn't it be great if he came today? All these problems, we'd leave Corona behind. I remember years ago they had a Toyota Corona. You remember that? A lot of Coronas. There are a lot of people named Corona. I don't know if I'd want that name now, but it is a name, common name. But we would leave it all behind to be with our Lord. Then we also notice in the previous text, in just verses 29 and 30, we, we, he, we, the Bible says, excuse me, he, pre, <clears throat> hold on, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, 
He justified us and he glorified us. So when Paul says, what should we say to these things? He's already laid the foundation throughout this chapter to say, we, we can say that since God's for us, who could be against us? Here's a God that has chosen us and justified us, called us out. A, a God that's done all that. We have nothing to fear. Then he says in verse 32, he that spared not his own son. Abraham's a great type, we know, of our Lord. Abraham's a type of the father, I should say. Isaac's a type of the son. Eliezer's a type of the Holy Spirit. In the passage where Eliezer is working to find a bride, we don't know the name, and we don't have a name for the Holy Spirit. And all that's symbolic when Eric, uh, Abraham excuse me, has taken the three-day journey to offer his son, we know that's a type of the Lord being considered or being uh, dead for three days and three nights and their three-day journey and all that's typology. And Abraham offered Isaac. He laid him on the altar and fully intended on killing him until God stopped him. And God also offered Jesus. A lot of times we think we watch the story of the crucifixion and we want to get upset with Judas because, you know, Judas was a crook and he betrayed the Lord. It wasn't Judas that sent Jesus to Calvary. We, we say, well, Pilate was, you know, a coward and he could have delivered the Lord, but he was a coward. But it wasn't Pilate that sent the Lord to the cross. We think about the Sanhedrin. And, and I mean, you talk about an influential body. The, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the high priest, all the authority they had, they hated Jesus and wanted to kill him. And, and we think about how controlling they were of the, everything that went on in the city as far as the religious crowd. They were the controllers, but they didn't send him to the cross. 1 John 4.10 says this, He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. He sent him to the cross. In fact, Isaiah 53.10 says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise him. How would it please God to bruise him? We know in other parts of Scripture it hurt the, the Lord. I mean, God gave his only son. Then how would it please him? Well, it satisfied his anger. Because God hated sin. And Jesus became our sin, and that pleased God. So you see, it wasn't Pilate or Judas. It was God that delivered him up. It was God that offered him. The Bible says here, delivered him up for us all. And how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's a great word, freely give. It's our word charismia. We get our word charity from it. You know, charitable organizations. A church should be charitable. That's the word. It's translated in Colossians 2, 3, having forgiven. In the middle of that word forgiven is the word give. It's all about charity. God gave his son freely. Last week in Ephesians, we talked about the gift of grace. It was a gift, not of works. Lest any man could boast, it was a gift. So he freely gave us all things. Then we get to verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of? of God's elect, what's the answer? Nobody. Nobody can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Now look at Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, just a few pages before this, and we want to show you how this Greek word is translated. Here it's translated in our text, charge, but in 26.2 it's translated 
accused. In the last line, it says, all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, Paul says. Same word, same word. It's a word that really means an indictment. You've heard that word on your detective shows or your, you know, your police shows, an indictment. And that's what it means. And can anyone indict a Christian? No. No. There's no eternal opposition. No one can indict us, eternally speaking. We can get in trouble down here. But think of the courtroom where Satan's there and the great high priest and uh, Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. There's a courtroom scene. And Satan's accusing, but he doesn't get anywhere. He's always accusing the brethren. That's one of the titles for Satan. He makes accusation against us to God. And our lawyer, the advocate, that's what it means, Jesus steps up and says, the penalty's already been paid for that. That's under the blood. And so he can't make an accusation. He can't indict us. He can't charge us because it's already under the blood. Isn't that great? Now, I can see my sin, but God chooses not to. He can't see it because he sees the blood. And so Satan can accuse me and talk about what a rat I am, and it's all under the blood. It's gone, and I love the fact that it's as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed my transgression from me. And so God can't even see my sin. The indictment won't stand because my lawyer Jesus would say, I know I have proof the price is paid. He's already served his time. I served it for him on Calvary. Then we find in verse 34, no eternal condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? What's the answer? There's no one. No one can condemn us. No one can condemn us. Another one of these seven rhetorical questions. It's Christ that died. And, and adding to that, he rose again. He's risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also, also makes intercession for us. Love Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. None. Nada. Zero zilch. And then he ever lives to make intercession, Hebrews tells us. 7, 24 and 25. Here it says the same thing. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he's making intercession all the time for us because Satan continually accuses us. He makes an accusation and the Lord defends us. And once you confess it, you're cleansed again. That word catheter, remember 1 John 1, 9? He cleanses us. Once you confess it, it's gone and you're clean and Satan attacks us every day, constantly accusing us, constantly trying to trip us up so he can say to God, your justification didn't work for him. And then Jesus steps up, and the only perfect lawyer that's ever been, and I'm sure there are some good lawyers, but some of them have bad names, but he never has sinned and has never done anything wrong, and so he's a perfect advocate for me. And he defends me all the time. And I make him work pretty hard because of my stupidity sometimes. 
Because Satan sees what I do and runs to the Father. There's no eternal condemnation. Someone gets saved. I have a friend who was saved after killing a man, second-degree murder. He's in a prison ministry now. And do you know, while he was condemned here and spent many years in jail, there's no eternal condemnation. Every born-again child. The thing about grace that amazes me is this. To, to those of us that were reared in a Christian home, we almost think it's not fair. I never did all that real bad stuff. I was a rascal. I did some bad stuff. But I, I know guys that, you know, robbed. I know one guy that broke in and robbed a store. He was constantly doing stuff like that on drugs and just a jerk of jerks. He got saved. He's got the same grace I have. I was saved at 12. And I'm like, how can he be so happy in his salvation? He's got all kinds of joy, and sometimes I don't. Lord, what's up with this? Grace, grace, amazing grace. <laughs> That's the thing about grace. No matter what you've done, his grace is sufficient. His grace has always exceeded our sin. Sometimes we, we see people, I had a couple in my church, he was a jerk and he was a terrible person. She was always a faithful Christian. She said, Brother Dan, it bothers me sometimes. He got saved, he's got all this joy and nothing ever bothers him. And I get frustrated and he's got all this joy. And I'm like, Lord, he did all that bad stuff. That's the great thing about grace. It's gone. It's gone. And then this last section is, is so awesome. No eternal separation. Another rhetorical question. Who can separate us from the love of God? And the answer is nothing. But he'll, he'll, he'll list so many things that you would think about in life that maybe could separate you, but none of them do. The first thing he says is shall tribulation. And what's the answer? No. Tribulation won't separate you from God. Look at John 6. Well, look at the word here first. Tribulation, verse 35. And then go to John chapter 16, verse 21. John 16, 21. <clears throat> and a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish. That word anguish right there. That word anguish. That's the same Greek word as tribulation. Labor pain. And no matter what tribulation you have, no matter what anguish you have, that doesn't separate you from the love of God. You know, they say, by the way, somewhere in China, there's a lady having a baby every 30 seconds. We need to find that lady and help her. That's bad. That's bad. Notice the next, back in our text, the next word, tribulation or distress. This means a pressure from all sides. Has that ever happened to you? Isn't it something how that when you have a little financial stress, if you do, you also have maybe a little health concern and maybe a child that's getting on your nerves and maybe there's a problem at work and you feel like it's closing in from all sides. You know what the Greek word is? And you know this word. It's the word stenosis. Stenosis. A narrowing of the spine. That pressure. And sometimes we feel that pressure. It's just coming from all directions. 
And it's, it's, it's an awful thing in life. It's an awful thing to have a disease where your spine is under that kind of pressure. But life can feel like that. And you're like, I can't take it anymore. But you know what? That can't separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. The next word, persecution. Now, the Roman Christians were going to experience some of that, weren't they? The Jews have been run out of the city. What are they going to do with the Christians? They're going to throw them to the lions. They're going to torture them. They did terrible things to Christians. And that can't separate you from the love of God. And, and poverty, food, famine. No, notice what it says. Being naked, being without clothing, or, or without clo clothing or food. I love Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Do you know as believers we don't have to worry about food, clothing, and shelter? We don't have to worry about those things. And it says, even Solomon in all his glory was not as beautiful as the lilies of the field. Probably a reference to the purple irises that just are everywhere in Israel. Do you know if you take a, a portion of a robe, a purple piece of material, and put it in our microscope, it's just a bunch of black dots. But if you take a purple lily and put it in our microscope, it's the most beautiful thing. God does a better job than we do. And even in all his glory, Solomon wasn't clothed as beautiful as the lilies of the field. But even if we don't have food and we don't have clothing, that can't separate us from the love of God. Or peril, which is danger. Or punishment. He talks about the sword, which was an instrument of judicial and, and capital punishment back then. That can't separate you from God's love. Verse 36, as it is written, that's referring to Psalm 44, 22, for thy sake we were killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Did you know that's an accounting term? That we, we know that term. When you became a Christian in Rome in that day, you just had better count on being persecuted. Think of that. You don't have that in Rossville and Fort Oglethorpe. You don't have that in North Georgia, anywhere in America. You do in China. And you do in other places in the world. But that's saying here that if you are a follower of the Lord, just count on it, you're going to be persecuted. But don't forget that persecution can't keep you from the love of God. You're going to be with him forever and ever. You'll be with him and walk those streets of gold. Or the street of gold, it says. Maybe there's more. But I think the one street that goes right through the holy city is solid gold. Verse 37. Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors. I like 2 Corinthians 2.14. He always causes us to triumph. You know, if you want to go through life pouting and bitter because of your temporary situations, you can choose to do that. But don't you think it's time to get over it and rejoice in the Lord? You're going to have difficulty, but you can still have joy. You could have a stroke. Mike could have a terrible attitude, but he doesn't choose to. People who had terrible financial situations, health concerns, marital problems, sick children, they can choose to rejoice. I like 2 Thessalonians. Make the choice to rejoice. Have an attitude of gratitude. Because it's only temporary. It's going to be gone. 
You're going to exit this body one day or exit this world one way or the other, and it's all over and forever and ever and ever and ever with the Lord, and nothing can change that. Your circumstances may be bad, but God is great. And when you're a child of God, you have a lot to look forward to. He goes on to list a few more things. In verse 38, neither death, you know the Bible says absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Nothing separates you. Even when you die, you're immediately with the Lord. Nor life, C.T. Studd said, sometimes we fear living. You think about people who have struggled with terrible pain and disease. They dread waking up in the morning. People who have financial uh, people after them, they're, they're struggling financially. They don't want the next day to come because the bill is due and the creditors are waiting. Or the little boy that's afraid to go to school because there's a bully there. Even life can't separate you from the love of God. Life or death or angels, which obviously were good in the beginning, nor principalities, which the, the word there is hierarchies. We get our word archangel and archbishop from that. Neither, neither any, any power, supernatural power, including evil angels, the devil, nothing, nor powers, our word dynamite, nor things present, nothing that's going on in your life now, or even the future things, nor things of the future can separate you from the love of God. You say, I dread next year, I dread next week. That can't separate you from God's love. You're still in his hands. You're still in his arms. You're still wrapped up in his love. Learn to live in Christ instead of in circumstances. Learn the joy of a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ rather than living in the muck of the world and pouting because of the difficulty. You're going to have difficulty. Jesus said you're going to have to take up a cross and follow him. The world hated him. They hate you. Take up your cross, whether it's financial or physical, whether it's marital or or parental. Take up the cross and follow the Lord. And you'll have the joy of serving Jesus. In verse 39, I guess one of my favorite scriptures is verse 39. And studying this just really just Lights are going off in my head, and, and I'm crying in my study because I'm just like, whoo, you know, like that. It's just so awesome to read this verse. You know, this whole passage was awesome to me. But verse 39 says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, nothing of God's creation. The word height is a word that has to do with a star at its greatest zenith. Think of the word zenith. The word depth has to do with star at its lowest point. The word is bathos. You don't need to know that. But think of how far it is from the star at its lowest point in the universe to the star at the greatest zenith in the universe. The distance. Can you imagine that? That can't separate you from God, from the love of God. There are 250,000 stars times 250,000 stars bigger than our sun. And our sun is so big, you can put 330,000 Earths in it. Think of that. 
If you are on the closest star, I think it's the Alpha Centauri, I'm not sure, if you're on the closest star and had a telescope, you couldn't even see the Earth. I mean, God created all that. And he says, as far as the farthest star of the farthest universe, wherever it is, we don't know, we'll never know until we see him. To the star that's the most just greatest distance away, that can't separate you from the love of God. Now, if he hadn't given us enough examples, that's, that's an example. And he created all that. He spoke it into existence. He could do that because he's God. And that same God created the little bumblebee. That defies all the laws of aviation. They can't figure the bumblebee out. How does that big fat critter fly like he does? Doesn't make sense to modern man, but God created it. And I, I clipped this little thing out about the shrew. I, I thought it's amazing. When I was a kid, we had a bunch of shrews in the back of our refrigerator. At least that's what we thought they were. And my dad killed them, grabbed them with his hand and didn't have mousetraps. Maybe we didn't have money for a mousetrap. I don't know. But we had mousetrap the game, but we probably couldn't afford the real mousetraps. Anyway, we had these little critters, shrews. They're two inches long. They weigh as much as a nickel. Smallest mammal on the planet, yet they have a bite like a cobra. They eat twice their own weight in meat every day. You couldn't do that at Golden Corral, brother. He loves going. He's talking about it this week a couple times. But twice the amount of meat of its weight every day can whip an animal three times its size. They have needle-like teeth and a mouthful of poison. They have enough saliva that the shrew saliva contains a strange poison that can kill a mouse within three minutes, and they have enough poison to kill 200 mice. Little shrew. You know who made that little critter? God did. The same God that put the stars out there. To think of the God who created this universe, he says to us personally, nothing's going to separate you from my love. I love you and that's not going to change. Nothing's going to creep in between us. No matter what mistakes you've made or will make, that won't separate you from God's love. And then Paul goes into chapter 9. Remember, there aren't chapter divisions in the Bible. And what does he talk about? After thinking about and reflecting on all this awesomeness, he says, now my heart's broken. Because my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they're going to go to hell. And that's a paraphrase. Jews are going to hell. I wish I could be a curse so they could be saved. And that should be our attitude leaving today. Stop moping about our trials and tribulations. I took my 13 pills this morning, my cholesterol pill, and my two blood sugar pills, and my two high blood pressure pills. Did I say that? No, two, two, type 2 diabetes. Is, there's five of those. Then I took my, they say I need to take a vitamin D and an aspirin. I took my antibiotic. I took my 11 pills. And I was like, hey, I'm tired of taking pills. So I guess I'll mope around today and complain. But then I see someone who is in a wheelchair and think, why am I complaining again? Oh, the pills, the pills. I can shove a big chunk of pie in my mouth. What's the big deal with 11 pills? 
and I'm all worried about my little problems and the world's going to hell. We need to say, God, thank you for the privilege of knowing you for eternity and these problems that are plaguing me now are just temporary, but there's people going to hell forever. We need to be about our Father's business, reaching souls for Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these 35 minutes of preaching. I love to preach, Lord, but I always want you to minister to hearts because I can't do anything but by your grace. And so I just pray you've spoken to hearts. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that needs to come and say, I've got to quit moping about my problems and be about my father's business. And I didn't realize how great the love of God is and be a positive, encouraging person in this world. Or I need to witness to my neighbor. God, I don't know the hearts here today, and I know you speak in a unique way to everyone. And I don't know what's going on in lives, but I know you're God. You know us. You know our being. You know our heart.